You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for the ways that you are mightily at work around the world places like Burkina Faso, places like Richmond, Virginia. We're so grateful that we can be a part of your story. Thank you that you have made yourself known to us uh, through your scriptures and that all of scripture bears witness to Jesus. Pray that you would um, help and empower all of us, especially me and my own uh, weakness today, that you would give us all strength that we might not just hear your word, but respond to it with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, family. Great to see you. Uh, we, if you're visiting today, welcome. Really glad you're here. I'm Corey. I'm the senior pastor here at Third. Um, welcome, welcome to all of y'all. Uh, we are studying this fall one of the three um, books in the Old Testament um, that's called Wisdom Literature, which, um, despite being thousands of years old, is shockingly relevant for the times that we live in today. And we're looking at this book, Ecclesiastes, um, which is written by um, someone who is not given a name, simply called the teacher, who we have been calling Kohelet, which is Hebrew for teacher. And we're learning um, from this book how to be human. What does it mean for us to live good human lives in a world as broken and befuddling as the one that all of us live in? So today uh, we're looking at the subject of suffering. So if you'll open your Bibles uh, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, um, Scott Ziegler will be reading to us from there. So let's hear God's word. Good morning, church family. Uh, Today's reading is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 8 through 18. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be overrighteous, neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one 
and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thomas Boston was a Presbyterian pastor of a little country church um, in the 1700s. And he was known to be a really passionate preacher of the gospel of grace. Um, and he was also known um, to be someone who really suffered. Um, of the 10 children born to Thomas and his wife, Catherine, um, six of them died in their infancy. And one loss was especially tragic. Um, they had already lost a son whose name was Ebenezer. Um, and if you know uh, your Bibles and Second Samuel, you'll, you'll know that that word, Ebenezer, means thus far the Lord has helped us. And so when Catherine was expecting another child, um, they discussed, they considered naming this child um, Ebenezer, if it was a boy. But they were really hesitant about this because naming this boy Ebenezer in their eyes would be a testimony of their trust in the faithfulness of God. But what they wrestled with was, what if this boy died also? What would that say about God? What would that say about his faithfulness? That would just be a loss too bitter to bear. But after a lot of wrestling and praying and reflecting, they actually decided in faith to name um, this new baby boy, Ebenezer, uh, trusting that the Lord would reward their faith. So just after a few short months, um, little baby Ebenezer got sick. And they prayed and they prayed and they pleaded and pleaded But in the end, uh, this baby also died. Another Ebenezer taken from them. How would you handle that? And there's really no words for that kind of grief. But we do get a window into Thomas Boston's heart and mind because a few years later, he preached a sermon. And it was called The Crook in the Lot. And his sermon text was, guess what? Ecclesiastes 7.13, what Scott just read to you. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? So he's talking in Old English language here. You know, by lot, he means the circumstances that have been given to you. And by crook, he means a a bend or a break or a twist, a crook in your lot. So the question this morning is, what do you do when there's a crook in your lot? You know, what, what do you do when the life that you wanted is not the life that you have. When um, your lot, your life is full of trouble and trial or adversity or affliction, how do you keep your head when you just can't make sense of it all? That's the question this morning. I mean, I think that maybe there are some of you who have had a life that has been untouched so far by suffering. And if that's you, Kohelet would say to you, um, just give it time. (laughs) Um, there's, There's no getting through life without being human. And being human in this world uh, means facing all of the broken and befuddling situations about what it means to be human in this world. And that includes heartache and sickness and chronic illness and depression and loneliness and anxiety and betrayal and broken relationships and failure and destructive sin and bereavement and sorrow and aging and death. This is not Barbie land. This, this is... This is, this is the world of heaven. So, you know, we've been addressing the, the topic of suffering throughout this series, at least in a secondary way. But today we really want to look at it head on and ask the question, how do you suffer wisely? How do you suffer well? If it's true that suffering and adversity 
and affliction is inevitable. Um, How can you handle it in such a way that makes you a stronger, kinder, wiser person rather than the opposite? Um, I know I've used this illustration with you a number of times before, but it's the best one that I know of. Um, Imagine a a, a pot of boiling water. Uh, When you drop an egg into the, the water, it becomes hard. When you drop a carrot into the water, it becomes soft. And when you drop a coffee bean into the water, it becomes fragrant. And we all know people um, who have been dropped into suffering and they've become really hard and bitter. And we all know people who have become um, soft and shallow and superficial and avoidant. And yet there are some people, and actually there's a lot of you, there's a number of you in this room who have been dropped into a pot of toiling suffering. And it has made you more fragrant, more whole, more beautiful. How, how does that happen? How do you suffer wisely? What do you do when a crook is in your lot? That's, that's the question we're asking today, okay? So first, let's look at um, how not to suffer, because this section has a lot of really amazing stuff to say about how not to handle suffering. So we'll look at that first, okay? So look at verses 16 to 18. These are really interesting verses. I didn't understand them whatsoever when I first read them. <laughs> do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one, not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. What I think he's doing here, read, studied a lot this, this week on these verses. What I, what, what I think he's doing here is he's outlining two wrong ways to respond to the nonsensical, um, unpredictable, painful realities of life. Um, And the first way that I'm just going to call it um, escapism. Escapism, which is fleeing reality. Okay, when when you realize this, and, you know, for for people it's different ages. Sometimes it's when you're small, if a tragedy hits. Sometimes it's when you're older. Sometimes it's when you're, you're... in your older years. But at some point you realize that you, you can't explain everything. You don't understand why things happen the way that they do. When you see all the suffering, the oppression and the injustice in the world, when you realize that you and everyone you love is going to die, you know, at some point you, you hit this reality. And at that point, um, one way to handle that is to try to flee the truth, flee reality and to numb your, your pain. Um, this is what Kohel had experimented with in the earlier parts of this book. He tried out, do you remember what he tried out? He tried out pleasure, uh, work, um, money, wealth. All of these can be ways to escape um, reality, can be ways to escape pain. You can party as hard as you can. You can work yourself to the bone. You can take as many amazing vacations as you can afford. Uh, You can laugh as loud and as often as possible. You can drink yourself into oblivion. You can buy all sorts of stuff that keeps you constantly titillated and distracted. All of that is, is a form of escapism, and Kohelet calls this here the way of the fool, or being over-wicked, uh, which is kind of a weird way of saying, yeah, here's one way to do it. Just live for yourself. Forget God. Don't even try to figure out the meaning of life. Embrace this nihilistic, meaningless, me-centered reality, escapism. Do any of you have any ways that you're tempted by those forms of escapism? <laughs> yes, I do. Um, But that's not the only kind of escapism. Check out some of these pithy sayings that he uses in the first part of the reading. In each of them, he describes a slightly more sophisticated form of escapism. So the first is, look at verse 8. Impatience. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Think about a time recently you were impatient. For me, it's very easy. Um, I I have... um, 
mild OCD about being on time, and the rest of my family is not. Um, and so I get pretty impatient when one or more of them are making us late, and that's actually like multiple times a day. And as I was reflecting on this, what I realized is that my impatience is a form of pride. It's actually a way of me saying, I am unwilling to accept what is happening to me right now, and I demand instead the way I want things to be. Uh, David Gibson, who wrote a great book on Ecclesiastes, says, impatience is a way of escaping reality and wishing things were different than they really are. Impatience is a way of escaping reality and wishing that things were different than they really are. So are there any threads of impatience in your life? Uh, second, he, he talks, talks about anger. Um, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. So similar to impatience, anger is often a sign of an escapist spirit. Uh, very rarely is a human being righteously angry. More often than not, our anger is provoked when something is not happening the way we want it to, right? When something isn't going the way that I would require that it goes. It's a form of rejecting reality, again, demanding that reality be something else. This is not what I want it to be. Again, David Gibson, anger is a way of escaping your inability to cope with things not being the way you want them to be. Anger is a way that you cope with things not being the way that you want it to be. Does, do you see that in your life at all? Finally, this is interesting, verse 10. He says, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. He addresses your nostalgia, which is really interesting. I've never thought about this before. Um, it's very common to people say, for say, to say things like, things are not like what they used to be. Um, why is the world getting so terrible? You know, I, sometimes people say to me, well, I'm glad I don't have to bring up my kids today. Thanks, appreciate that. Um, <laughs> all of this assumes, doesn't it, that the past is better than the present, but Kohelet would say that is very unwise. It's unwise, first of all, because it is willfully ignorant of the many evils in the past. And then second, it is willful blindness to the good things of the present. And perhaps worst of all, nostalgia is sort of like giving up on God's faithfulness. Was God faithful in the past, but now is not? Was God in control in the past, but now suddenly is, is not, right? To ask the question of verse 10 is to leave God out of the picture. So nostalgia too is a form of escapism. It's basically like taking a vacation in the past instead of grappling with the reality of the present moment. So all of this, Kohelet would say, is the first bad way to handle suffering and pain, whether through distracting yourself with money or pleasure or work or whether becoming ensnared in impatience or anger or nostalgia. One of the ways we humans cope with the painful reality of now is by escaping it in one way or another. So just think about that. Do you relate to any of those things? It's good to know yourself. But there's the other bad way of handling suffering is what I'll call moralism, which is explaining reality. Look again at verses 16 and 17. Not only does Kohelet advise us against being over-wicked, he also advises us against being over-righteous or over-wise. What in the world does that mean? Well, um, if you know the story of Job in the Old Testament, you know that he had several friends who turned out to be pretty bad advisors. Um, Job is suffering a great deal, and Job's friends keep trying to explain to him why. Why, why he's suffering. Maybe it's, you know, it's surely you sinned. Surely it's something you did. Surely something maybe your ancestors did. Maybe it was something, you know, maybe you did it unknowingly. Maybe your kids did something. You know, they keep trying to propose answers to him to explain the suffering that he's going through. This is a perfect example of being over-righteous or over-wise. 
If escapism is about fleeing reality, moralism is about explaining reality, right? Insisting that you know why things are happening the way they are. If you, and, and it's understandable because if you, can, if you can understand why things are happening, it makes it feel a little less scary. If you can, um, you know, if you can pr- propose an answer for why things happen the way they do, it makes the world feel a little less chaotic. But Kohel had earlier in the book already discussed the futility of trying to explain the suffering and absurdity of the world. He said, don't even try this. Things just don't work the way they're supposed to. The healthy guy gets cancer when he's 30, and the guy who vapes and eats corn dogs lives until he's 85, right? The kid who has the best parents in the world goes off the rails, while the kid who has deadbeat parents ends up a superstar. None of this makes any sense. And Kohela concludes, our formulas for life, while sometimes helpful, are never ultimately reliable. Why? Because life is absurd. And the world is baffling and things never turn out the way that the rules and the formulas promise they will. There is something about the nature of our world that is so crooked, that is so broken, that is so absurd, that no amount of rules or formulas or principles is going to set it right. Um, Kay Bowler um, is, a, is, a, is an author. Um, she's actually faculty at Duke uh, University. And at age 35, when she, after she'd had her first child, she um, contracted stage four colon cancer. And this is what she writes. Everything happens for a reason. I know that's a little small, so I'll read it to you. The only thing worse than saying this is pretending that you know the reason. I've had hundreds of people tell me the reason for my cancer. Because of my sin, because of my unfaithfulness, because God is fair, because God is unfair, because of my aversion to Brussels sprouts. I mean, no, no one is short of reasons. So if people tell you this, make sure you're there when they go through the cruelest moments of their lives and start offering your own. And then listen to this. When someone is drowning, the only thing worse than failing to throw them a life preserver is handing them a reason. I mean, there's just so much in life that doesn't make sense. It's Hebel, so stop trying to act like it makes sense to you. Don't be overwise. When you do that, you're not being kind to yourself, and you're really not being kind to people who are suffering. So that's how not to suffer. Escapism, moralism. Okay, so, so if that's the wrong way to do it, well, well, how do we suffer wisely? Well, let's look at a couple things that he suggests. First of all, acceptance. Acceptance. 714. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. You know, um, we live in a time um, in which science really has taken a care of a lot of human affliction. You know, we have anesthesia to take away pain. Um, We have medicine um, to overcome illness. We have technology to sort of remove drudgery. And so I do think that it's true that we modern people um, seem to expect to go through life without affliction. But Kohela reminds us that life in this world is a life of trouble, and you should never expect to be exempt from struggle. Don't be surprised when things don't go the way they're supposed to. When something is painful, nothing's wrong. Uh, That's just the way life is. You're going to have days when everything is great, when the sun is shining and the birds are singing and everything is right with the world. And on days like that, he says, be joyful, be happy, he says, right? Every delicious meal, every financial windfall, every meaningful conversation, every simple blessing. These are gifts from God. They're opportunities for you to receive them with gratitude, you know? But for every day that is good, there'll be days that are really hard. 
and the sun doesn't shine, and the birds don't sing, and nothing seems right with the world, and it seems like you're alone, and the problems are overwhelming, and yet Kohelet says, this day also is given by God. Recognize that this is part of life in our world, and accept these days too as part of what it means to live under the care of a good God. Now, that is hard to do. I mean, no, no one uh, wants to just accept difficulty and pain and trials. And we want to do everything we can to change them and control them and resist them. And I will say, sometimes there is a time and season to, to change a circumstance or to resist it. But most of the hard and painful things that happen to us, we have very little control over. Most, most all of them, we have very little control over. And if you refuse to accept the painful situations you're in, that ironically will intensify your suffering even more. Thomas Boston, remarkable on this, 300 years ago. This is what he writes. Impatience under the crook, or in other words, not accepting the suffering, lays an overweight on the burden and makes it heavier, while withal it weakens us and makes us less able to bear it. In other words, he's saying, the burden is hard enough as it is, but if you refuse to accept it, it's like adding another weight on top of it that not only hurts you, but makes you less able to bear it. When you're able to accept a painful situation, receiving it as the life you actually have, not the life that you want, but the life you actually have, you still have to endure the pain, but you're no longer adding to it. You're in, you, you then open up an opportunity for you to invite God into your pain and, and, and to find God's goodness and provision within the struggle. So you can practice this. Um, you, you can start with, with small things. So every day, um, small annoyances and difficult to accept situations will happen to you. Um, and if you can practice acceptance in the everyday situations like this, you'll be better prepared to embrace acceptance when more intense suffering hits your life. So this week, I just want to encourage you to do this this week. Um, here's what's going to happen this week. You're going to have to wait in the long line. Um, when the delivery person is 30 minutes late, when your coworker makes a mistake, when you run out of paper towels, um, when the weather is bad, when someone cuts you off in traffic, when you step in gum or dog doo-doo, when a dish breaks, when gas prices rise, when your partner forgets to pick up milk, you know, when your toddler acts like a toddler, um, instead of reacting with anger, impatience, or annoyance, which only intensifies the problem and makes it worse, learn to take a few deep breaths Ground yourself in your present moment and say, this is the day God has given me right now. This is not a surprise. This is life in the Hebel. I receive it as it is. Help me, O Lord, to find your goodness and live faithfully within this moment. That's the practice of acceptance. Second, though, it's a practice of trust. Verse 13, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. I actually really like the New Living Translation of this, except the way God does things. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? What he's saying is, look, if something looks really broken, really messed up, really crooked, do you really think that you can straighten it out and understand all the reasons for why this might be happening? One commentator I read said this one verse, verse 13, sums up the entire book of Job. What happens in the book of Job? A guy endures horrible suffering, and he never finds out why. 
He never finds out why, which seems like awful to us, right? We always want to know why. We demand answers. And when we can't see the answers for things, we often insist that it's pointless, that God must be unjust or unloving or untrustworthy. But what Kohelet is saying here is honestly, that's awfully presumptuous. You're basically saying, if I can't see the point to this, there must not be a point. If I can't see the purpose behind this, there must not be any purpose. And that is revealing a lot of faith in you, (laughs) in your own cognitive faculties, right? Um, Again, I think I've used this before, but um, Cornelius Plantinga is a philosopher at Notre Dame, and he, in a book on suffering that he writes, he writes about... um, he makes, he makes up a, a logical fallacy that he calls um, the no fallacy. Ever been camping? You know what no are? They're those tiny little bugs that you can't see and they crawl up under your skin and they make you break out in terrible rashes. Well, what he says is if, you, if you're camping and you look in your tent and you do not see any no it is not logical to then conclude that there are no no in your tent. Why? because you can't see him, right? <laughs> and so he applies, Cornelius Plantinga applies this to suffering by saying, just because you can't see the purposes of God doesn't mean there are no purposes of God. You know, how, how, could, you, how could you know the mind of God? You don't even know the mind of your spouse. And I've been married to mine for 25 years. Like, how, how, could, you, how could you dare to suggest that you could know the mind of God? You know, if you could diagram this, Here's a little diagram for you. Um, And you draw like a huge circle, which is the sovereign will of God. And then you draw a tiny little dot. That's your understanding of the sovereign will of God, right? The God of the Bible is a God who is so big, so sovereign, so good, so beyond our comprehension. And in fact, if God and his ways were completely understandable to you, then that would not be God. That would just be a projection of your own wants and desires, If you want a God that is big and powerful enough to deal with suffering and to do something about suffering in the world, then you have to accept also a God who is so mysterious sometimes that he will do things that you cannot understand. At the end of the book of Job, after his friends try to explain to him, God just shows up and he doesn't explain anything. He just shows up in all of his power and glory. And Job responds in Job 42.5, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I humble myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job never sees, he never understands, but he understands his place. He sees God is big, I am small. He recognizes the limits of his own wisdom and he humbles himself. And this is essentially what the teacher says in verse 18, the person who fears God will avoid all extremes. To fear God means to know your place before God, to see your smallness, to recognize the limitations of your own wisdom, to see that there is so much about suffering and about our world and about God's way in our worlds that are mysterious and beyond our understanding. Those who've gone through experiences like this will often tell you that this is, this is really the only way to become a mature person. Um, Jerry Sitzer is a theology professor at Whitworth um, who lost his wife, daughter, and mother in a single car accident. He suffered shattering grief for years, but in his astonishing book, Grace Disguised, which I highly recommend, he writes that loss and suffering can enlarge the heart and actually lead to our own healing. He writes this, only a person who has suffered that deeply can write this, okay? And I am not daring to presume upon any suffering that you're enduring. I'm just telling you what he says. 
He says the sickness of soul can only be healed through suffering. What is the sickness of soul? It's the insistence that I know what is best for my life. It's the demand that I be in control and that I deserve the life I want. Suffering chastens us of this illusion. Eugene Peterson translates 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2 this way. Think of your sufferings as a weaning from that old sinful habit of always expecting to get your way. Then you'll be able to live out your days free to pursue what God wants instead of being tyrannized by what you want. To have a sick heart means to be tyrannized by your demands. Sickness is always demanding the life that you think you deserve. But suffering and learning to trust God within it sets us free to stop living a life of independent, frustrated self-centeredness and to live instead a dependent, God-trusting contentment in the will of God. Now, none of this is easy, and some of you might be saying, I, I can't do that. That's a lot to ask of me, and I get it. I mean, I, honestly, if it weren't for Jesus, I'm not sure I could do this. And this is why um, I am so thankful for Jesus and so thankful for the Christian faith, which, unfortunately, sorry to disappoint, does not give you any explanations for suffering, um, does not defend the goodness of God in the face of evil, does not give some rational account for how suffering can coexist with the goodness of God. But what the Christian faith gives us instead is not a watertight argument, uh, but a watertight person. It gives us the person of Jesus who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Whose suffering can be dated, is dated and rooted in human history. What does this mean for us? It means, first of all, that God suffered with us, that we do not have a God who stands removed from any of our suffering, that he entered into the depths of our worst suffering with us. The author of Hebrews reminds us that in Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. We have a savior who is with us sharing our suffering, but we also have a God in Jesus who has suffered for us. Jesus has suffered in our place. There is, there's actually a way you could say that Jesus suffered instead of us because Jesus endures a suffering that no human being will ever have to bear. He alone bears the consequences of human sin and rebellion in himself, taking sin upon himself. Paul says, he who had no sin was made sin for us. He bears our suffering up onto the cross, down into the tomb. And so if you're suffering, you're invited to embrace Jesus is to stay engaged with God through him, not because it helps you escape, not because it helps you understand, but because it puts you into the arms of the one who promises that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. So what have we learned today? Suffering is inevitable. Being human in a world of hebel will bring disappointment, failure, struggle, betrayal, heartache, and death. So when you get dropped in the boiling water, what's going to happen to you? Are you going to flee reality and try to escape? That will only make you soft, unable to handle adversity, unwilling to face challenges lacking in depth of soul. Are you going to try to explain suffering and double down on your moralism? That will just make you hard, like an egg. It will make you uncompassionate, lacking compassion for the suffering of others, and bitter and angry when you suffer yourself. Or will you surrender? Will you accept the life that God in his sovereignty has given you? And trust that he is good, even if you can't understand it. Because in the end, we're not given answers. We're given by God a person of Jesus. And Jesus gives us his spirit, 
who was always with us. Thomas Boston closes his sermon in this way. As to the crook in your lot, God has made it and it must continue while he has it so. Should you ply your utmost force to even it or make it straight, your attempt will be vain. It will not change for all you do. Only he who made it can mend it. And he indeed will. One day God will take everything that is broken and bent and will mend it. He will bring the new creation. The day of resurrection is coming. And until that day, we hold fast to Jesus. We trust the Father's goodness. We depend on the Spirit's presence with us. We do these things in the hevel until he comes again to make all things new. Let's pray together. We thank you, O oh God, that you are always with us. And as hard as it may be, sometimes we ask that you would give us strength to not try to run from suffering, not try to escape reality, not try to explain reality, but to accept it, to receive it, and to trust you within it. And we know that we can do that because you've given us Jesus. Through his spirit, you are always with us. Amen.